Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. As you know, my favorite part of the week, but this is a different time of the day than you're used to seeing me doing my show because that was the only way I could get the amazing man that you see on the other picture in this screen who's waving at you right now, Brad Parks, one of my favorite authors in all the world who just is launching today, which is why I was willing to change the time so I can get him his new novel, Interference by that man, Brad Parks. Love, love, love this book. 437 pages or something, read it in one day because I could not put it down. So, um, Brad, welcome to the show. Well, Laura, thanks for having me on. It's, it's, it's good to be here. And I, so now this is the big test, right? And, and this is what I live to do as a thriller author. Did I make you ignore like your laundry, your dishes? You know, like, did, did, was there a little bit of slovenliness in your house because you just couldn't put the book down? That's, that's really what I'm going for. I'm like the opposite of Mr. Clean. I ignored wanting to go to the bathroom. Nice. <laughs> oh, that's good too. I, I, we can go scatological. I'm fine with that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And it was one of the, I picked it up because, you know, I needed to read it for the interview and I was treasuring it and waiting till just before. So it would all be really fresh in my mind. And I picked it up and my phone's ringing, my cell phone's texting, all this stuff is happening. And finally somebody's like ready to knock on my door because they thought something happened to me. <laughs> And I, I kept getting back-to-back texts, and they're like, where are you? Are you okay? And I said, I'm reading Brad's new book. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad we didn't quite get to the level of law enforcement being called, but that's good. That's good. Yeah. It's definitely one of those books that grabs your interest, like all of them. I mean, the last time you and I spoke, I looked it up, was March 3rd, 2018, when you were launching your book, Closer Than You Know. And the Vero Beach Book Center, want to give a shout out to them, local independent bookstore. We really need to support them right now. They introduced us because you were going to be coming there. And I know that for you right now, launching a book looks radically different than the book touring. Yes. So what is that like for you right now? Hi. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely different. Um, you know, like normally I would have a, a suitcase packed and I would have my, my suits all ready to go and I'd be taken off. And uh, so I always do like a, a local launch party. And so I would be, you know, doing the in-person local launch party. And then tomorrow morning I'd be getting on an airplane and I'd, and I'd be, you know, either on an airplane or in a car going somewhere every day for the next couple of weeks. And it's really weird like you know the the things that i normally do like you know making sure my oil is changed well i, mm -hmm. I don't need to do that to zoom and uh you know getting a haircut well you know i, I would kind of slack on the haircut a little bit because you know when you're when you're only this big on the screen you can't really see it all that well anyway <laughs> the heck with it so it's been uh yeah it, it's been a, a very different experience it's it in a way and this is the first time i'm realizing it it it, it does make the whole thing feel a little less real, right? Because okay. there's there's something about like going to Vero Beach Book Center 
and actually like seeing a nice stack of the books, like on a, you know, like right, right as you walk in right. the great table at Vero Beach Book Center, like, and they would always put my books like right there. So I think the first time I was at Vero Beach Book Center, was that the show I did with Brad Meltzer? That was the second one you did. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so I, uh, so anyway, great store, uh, you know, some great memories of that store and like, but like doing that sort of thing makes the whole thing feel like, oh, this is real now. Like uh, I'm actually signing this book for someone who's going to go home and read it. It must be out in the world. And now it's like, kind of like intellectually, I know that there have been a bunch of books kind of delivered all around the place and, and theoretically it's in people's hands and whatnot, but I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of lacking that, that real face-to-face -face contact. Although I, I always like am quick to remind myself. So anytime I start to feel a little sorry for myself, right? Because of this COVID thing and oh, my book tour. Okay, let's put things a little bit in perspective here. <laughs> if the worst thing about COVID in your life is having your book tour messed up, right. you're doing okay. Um, one of my, my favorite things uh, early in the pandemic as I was you know feeling sorry for myself, weren't we all kind of feeling sorry for ourselves, whatever. Right. Uh, the New York Times uh, put out this chart of, how dangerous is your job? Uh, and, it, and it put on one axis, it put like how many people you kind of come in contact with during the day. And then the other axis, it was like, how close is the contact, right? Okay. Well, the, the doctors and the lawyers and the first responders and the grocery store baggers and the, you know, the real heroes of this pandemic right. are all the way up in that right corner, right? They're the most dangerous jobs you can have. Right. Authors were all the way down left we were next to lumberjacks as having the safest possible job. So lumberjacks, okay. Uh, me and the lumberjacks, basically. Like, so you I have to write a book good. about that next. Yeah, <laughs> something with we're lumberjacks. lumberjacks. I, yeah, I don't know if that's that's gonna getting uh, drawing a different audience than I maybe normally do, Laura. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know something about you know some some murder or some kidnapping or something in the Pacific Northwest where the lumberjacks are. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, the whole time I'd had that Monty Python skit going through my head. You know, I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I dress in women's clothing. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't write that book. I don't just because of Monty Python and the lumberjack. So we're gonna, we're gonna leave that one on the back. Okay, room. gives new meaning to get the a shrubbery, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Okay, I can just go totally off in a torque on uh, Monty Python. Well, we're not gonna. We're not gonna allow we're, that. We're not uh, going there. No. Although you're kind of getting with the beard and the whole thing, you're kind of leaning that way from Holy Grail. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the book tour looks radically different. The yeah. advanced reader copy, and a number of people were like, "Well, it says it's supposed to come out in July," and it it shifted to September one. What was that also like for you? Because I know a lot of people were waiting for it and then they're like, right. oh, great. Now I have to wait even longer, but I'm telling everybody it is totally worth it and you can buy it today. Go ahead. Right. So the reason for that uh, is that I was selected as an Amazon First Reads. I um, did see that. Yeah, which is a program uh, where if you are an Amazon Prime member, you could download the book uh, for free in the month of August. Uh, and it's, a, it's actually, it, it sounds weird to say, I'm very excited to have my book downloaded for free by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but it, this, is, this is very 2020 thing. Laura, right. it's all about tricking the algorithm, right? Totally. Because basically what happens is it, it makes the algorithm think that because, okay, so how the algorithm thinks is 
these people have downloaded the book for free, but they've paid to be Amazon Prime. And therefore, uh, we count this as a paid book. So as far as the algorithm is concerned right now, I'm James Patterson because I just sold 200,000 books in the last month, right? Okay, well, and I like so, your books better than his, so I'm I, happy with that. <laughs> the, the algorithm is agnostic when it comes to that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but uh, it, it, it was just a, a level of exposure, frankly, that I kind of couldn't say no to. Sure. Um, you know, when you talk about, you know, 200,000 people suddenly getting your book, that's a, that's a pretty good number. So, uh, so that's why we kind of agreed to have it pushed back. And I, I apologize uh, to some of my, my favorite people in the world about that. But, um, you know, in, at the end of the day, this is uh, the same show, friends, it's show business. And, uh, you know, this was this was good for book sales. So, yeah, it, it's really interesting. You, you talk about the algorithms and everything, right? Because that's science. It's math. It's science. And this is the first book of yours that I've ever read that talks to your passion of physics. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fascinated by Einstein. I've, I've known a number of theoretical physicists in real life. And of course, I was a huge fan of the Big Bang Theory, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> Schrodinger's cat, you know, all of that stuff. Sci-fi, anybody who reads sci-fi. James Rollins, I don't know if you've gotten him to quote on this book yet, but you have to get James Rollins to quote on this book. He must. And I'm going to shoot him an email and tell him he must because I've interviewed him. And I'm like, you got to interview. You got to talk about this book. But anyway, you know, this whole idea of this world where when you start getting right down to it, math and these things that we can't even see really do say a lot about the world as we know it. We don't see mm. it, but when we move our hand, we do whatever. There is some sort of math about matter and energy and movement that, we scientists can science the heck out of, right? Right. What is it about physics and science that made you shift from your usual um, thematics that you knew from being a Washington Post journalist and um, the Star Ledger and Newark and all of that, that made you say, oh, I want to geek out? <laughs> Well, I've, I've kind of always been a geek, Laura, so it's, it's not like I'm discovering some new side of myself, believe me. Um, no, I think I had been wanting to write a physics book for a long time. Like I, I've had this kind of long-standing crush on the history of science, of all things. I, I just, I find it to be uh, just a, a fascinating, fascinating area of study, uh, you know, because it's really the history of ideas and, and how we come to understand the world and to see these people grappling with these very large questions and, and the different ways in which they've answered it over the, the, the decades and centuries and kind of how that story evolves. I just, right. I love any part of that narrative. I think like the, the story of physics itself, I will not bore you with it right now. Um, but you know, but it I'm is a physics a, geek, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's fascinating stuff of like, you know, especially being able to, to watch it in the rearview mirror, right? Because that's when the storyteller can really make sense of it. You know, I think physics right now can often be very confusing because a lot of it is you don't know, like who's right, who's wrong, where, where is this all heading? It's, you know, in the, in the, in the, it's, it's a hard story to tell right now, but, but when you can look back a hundred years um, and a lot of the science that I'm, I'm dealing with in this book is stuff they started to unearth about a hundred years ago. Um, you can really kind of say, okay, these were, these were the ideas that became transcendent and this is why, and then, and then play with them. So um, in this book in particular, in Interference, 
the concept we deal with is quantum entanglement, um, which sounds absolutely goofy to the layperson. And actually it sounds really goofy to the scientists too, but it's a real thing. Um, and basically it goes like this. Every now and then two particles can be born entangled. And when that happens, they are never again truly apart. You can tickle one and the other feels it immediately, no matter how far apart they may have traveled, right? Um, which is kind of a, a mind-bending concept. And if you're confused by it and I'm confused by it, it's okay because you mentioned you love Einstein. Einstein was confused by it too. Um, right. He was actually the guy who kind of discovered entanglement, if you will, in as much as he was looking at these new equations in quantum mechanics that were coming out. And he wasn't the one promulgating the equations, but he certainly understood them, right? And he would look at these equations and go, well, okay, now wait a second. If that's true, then this must be true. And one of the things that he, he realized right. was that in order to balance these equations, entanglement would have to be happening, right? Now to Einstein, this meant that quantum mechanics as it was being described was fundamentally broken because am I, am I allowed to swear on, on the Facebook Live? Just yes, you can. You couldn't when I was on broadcast, but. A light swear. Einstein thought entanglement was batshit, right? Um, he actually, he described it as spooky action at a distance. Uh, because he didn't believe that there could be something. Because what happens is, you know, you got particle over here, particle over here. You do this thing, something to this one, and this one immediately, immediately, instantaneously shows that it is aware what you've done over here. And how is that possible if they're separated by, say, a galaxy, right? Because that would mean something is moving faster than the speed of light. And Einstein thought nothing was faster right. than the speed of light, which is why he called entanglement spooky action at a distance, right? And he said, well, this is absurd, right? Except over the last hundred or so years, we have actually proven entanglement and demonstrated it in laboratories. Uh, as our as our technology has gotten more sophisticated, we've been able to kind of slowly and and, and this happened over a number of decades actually, uh, where they would sort of thought they would have it proved, but then another physicist would come along and say, well, you might not have it proved because there there could be this little loophole over here that's allowing us to see this thing that we think we see, but we're not really seeing it. Well, slowly over the decades, they closed off one loophole after another after another until they finally they they were left with one loophole. And it was the, uh, the uh, no, what was it? Was it like the, the choice loophole, right? The, 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 the notion choice, that, right. <clears throat> like the, the free choice loophole, that the, the scientists studying this might have been somehow inadvertently making decisions that made it seem that entanglement was happening when really all we were getting was the fact that it was human beings making these decisions. So a couple of scientists got together and they said, okay, Every time a decision needs to be made in this particular experiment we're gonna do with this very sensitive, delicate equipment, we are going to ask two quasars. Quasars are these incredible high energy cores of galaxies, right? right? And uh, we are going to ask a quasar that is 8 billion light years one way, and another quasar that is 12 billion light years another way. And, be, and we're gonna look at the light coming from these quasars. So this is a light that has been traveling to us since before there was such thing as planet Earth. And before any of these scientists were born, before our species was born, before like, so we've, we've eliminated human choice of all possibility of humans being right. involved in this because the quasars are gonna make the decisions and they let the quasars make the decisions and guess what? Entanglement is real. Entanglement really happened. And one of the scientists, 
serendipitously, who was doing this quasar decision, uh, the, the, this quasar experiment, is a guy I went to college with. At Dartmouth. Uh, he, at Dartmouth. He, he where sang the book we, is we, set. We, yes, where the book is set. We sang in the same singing group, right? Uh, and so he is now a professor of physics at MIT. Uh, Dave Kaiser is his name. I mentioned him in the uh, acknowledgments. And so I'd always sort of followed Dave's career because I was this science geek and it was always interesting to watch what Dave was doing. And so in 2018, his team definitively proved that like there are no more exceptions. There are no more possibilities. Like entanglement absolutely is 100% proven. It's real. It's really happening. Uh, and it was later in 2018 that I then started brainstorming and writing that novel of like entanglement, this cool thing of like, okay, we've entangled particles, we've entangled molecules, which of course are much bigger than particles, right. we've entangled like systems of molecules, right? So the great what if at the heart of interference is what if two people could become entangled? And, you know, like, haven't you ever felt you know, whether it's twin sense or maybe, you know, the, you know, the, the, the feeling you have with a good friend or with a spouse where something happens to them and you just kind of know something. The moment my grandmother happened. died, I knew she died. Exactly. Like, do you think it's possible that human beings can be entangled with each other? And that's the premise of interference. I wasn't expecting it when I started reading the book, right? And I, and I knew from all the materials I had received in advance of reading it, that we were talking about quantum entanglement, quantum interference, you know, quantum physics. And I went, oh, this should be really good because it's something I love. And you explained it in such a way that I kept going, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. And every idea that I thought where you might go with it was not where you went with it, which of course made me not want to go to the bathroom, forget I had to go to the bathroom, <laughs> not eat, not drink, not respond to texts because I'm like, oh my God, where's he going? Where's where's the, the twist, the turn and how you brought in all the, the different pieces. And by the way, I thought your description of Schrodinger's cat was the best one I think I've ever read. Oh, well, thank you. So it, it certainly helps that although I'm kind of a science nerd, I was never very good at science. And so like, I, and I don't really, and so I'm, I'm, I'm always very close to that lay person who knows nothing about science because I basically am that lay person who knows nothing about science. Right. So I'm always kind of thinking like, all right, how would I explain this to a dummy like me? And that's what I end up typing in the book. Um, but uh, but I, I think because I love it and because I'm fascinated by it, that I, I those are the parts that definitely kind of really engaged my own brain um yeah. and that, that i just found incredibly interesting and, and fun to play with um and if that was what kept you from going to the bathroom and got you dehydrated well then that's a win laura i'm good with that <laughs> well and then you know me from from our first interview and and my listeners know that i tend to go in different directions than a lot of other people do when they're doing interview. So I'm reading it, right? And I'm thinking these thoughts of matter and energy and how they interact, mm. right? Because you talk about that in the book and then with your protagonists and, and the antagonists and, you know, we can go through all the book literary things, you know, all the different characters, uh, the fact that you talk about hearing loss in it. My listeners know I've been dealing with the reverse. Two years I've been trapped in my house with sound-induced vertigo. Mm because I have now all of a sudden bionic hearing. 
So the slightest sounds can cause massive vertigo, including my own voice, right? So to read about a character who has some sort of hearing thing, that was really cool, not something talked about a lot. But I knew it had a purpose because all of these little threads in the hands of somebody like you mean something. But this idea of matter and energy and how they interact, my thoughts went to Brad Parks, the Washington, former Washington Post journalist, the former Newark Star General Parks, the, the man who's literally walked a beat, done stuff that a lot of us don't get to see. And I'm curious, when you were writing this, was this whole idea of matter and energy and how they interact, did what's going on in the world today with how you see action and reaction and action and reaction and how things tend to spiral, was that in your thoughts at all of how people can go down these rabbit holes in ways that if you just touch them like you do in the quantum interference entanglement you touch and something else immediately gets right. touched. Yeah, I don't know if explicitly it's there, but you know, I'm, I'm definitely a believer that, uh, it, well, it's the P.D. James theory. Uh, she has a great quote that nothing that ever happens to a writer, no matter how trivial, no matter how tragic, or, you know, she, she has a wonderful way of saying, it. but basically the, the point is nothing that ever happens to a writer is wasted, right? And I, and I think we're all in this world and wrapped up in matter and antimatter and all this wonderful stuff swirling around us. And, and of course it's going to impact your art, right? Um, and, and oftentimes in ways that I might not even realize, you know, one, one of the more rewarding aspects of, of now having the book actually out in the world is hearing people like you kind of interacting with it. And I, like, I just got a, a long note from a friend uh, and he, 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 bless his heart, he, um, he said, this is going to be too long for an email. So he wrote out a Microsoft Word document for me that was a page and a half long and, and enclosed it and then sent me the attachment. Um, and, you know, and, and I can't say where he went with it because I don't want to spoil some aspects of the book for readers. I'm trying but, really hard not to either. Yeah, no, but it's, it's really fun, though, to see where different people's brains kind of head with this. Um, and um, I don't know. Like, I think that's part of the, the magic of fiction. Right, like so. So you you, you talk about uh, Bridget Bronick, the protagonist of this uh, of this book, who has hearing loss. Right. Well, how did that come to be? Uh, well, it's actually not so magic. Uh, we had uh, so I, I have a, a basic rule, Laura. My protagonists can't be jerks. Right. Okay. I, I have to I have to like my protagonists because if I'm going to spend 400 pages with them, I got to like them. And so while I was kind of coming up with Bridget Bronick. Uh, we had a new neighbor move in across the street, uh, and she was, uh, her name is Melissa. She's a librarian who has hearing loss. Oh, I love it. And I'm like, huh, librarian with hearing loss. And I just, immediately, I just liked her. Like, I, we just, we talked, she was fun, she was funny, she was interesting. Like, I just liked her. And I'm like, okay, so what should Bridget Bronick be? How about a librarian with hearing loss? I don't know. Uh, and then you kind of put that into the world, right? right? And you kind of see how is that going to play and how's it going to go? And I mean, and initially I was, I was kind of excited by the idea because this is a, a thriller that I'm writing right here, if I've done my finger right. Um, and you don't often see that character in a thriller, no. like somebody with hearing loss. And I, I just thought that was cool, like and something different to explore and something interesting. But then the other aspect of this, um, and, and this was something I, I, I definitely was intentional about exploring, is that I'm always fascinated by the notion of how 
disabilities, what we classically call disabilities, often come with special abilities. Right. Uh, like I, I had a, a cousin who had Down syndrome. Did you know that people with Down syndrome report something like 98% of people with Down syndrome say they're happy and satisfied with their lives? Yes. You cannot find a subsection of people anywhere that report that great levels of life satisfaction, right? So True. isn't that Down syndrome, we would call that a disability, but it comes with this magical ability, this like happiness that so many of these people report having. Or um, dyslexia, classic example. Uh, dyslexics, you know, they're gonna have a hard time reading, they struggle in school. They are our greatest entrepreneurs. The number of dyslexics who go on and start businesses because they have these fabulously creative brains that approach problems in different ways than most of the rest of us, right? And so they end up starting businesses. And isn't that a great ability that goes with the disability right. and whatnot? So I, I always kind of just had that in my head. Now, in the case of Bridget Bronick with hearing loss, um, and this is, I, I became aware with my neighbor, Melissa, I would talk to my neighbor, Melissa, and if I was face to face with her and talking with her, no problem. If I did this and turned around and said the same sentence as loudly and as clearly, she couldn't hear me. She couldn't hear me. She was both hearing me because she has not complete total hearing right. loss. She has partial hearing loss, but she was also looking at me and reading my lips. And I thought, lip reading. Now there's kind of like a superpower that yeah. goes with disability. And isn't that something that I could use later in the book that's not uh you know what i loved about it is and i wasn't expecting that so you, you're you know. not expecting it and it's not a normal thriller <laughs> thing like i'm always looking to do something that you've never read in a book before right and so having a thriller hero who knows how to defuse bombs with their toes you've probably <laughs> read that somewhere right but having a thriller hero use lip reading like that eh, maybe that's one you haven't seen before right. and, I, and i just i love being able to bring those kind of elements into my novels there, there wasn't a single character in this book. I keep holding up the cover so everybody sees it. No, that's um, good. My publicist will pay you extra for that, by the way. You're good. <laughs> by the way, your publicist, lovely, lovely woman. We've had some great, great conversations. Yeah. So, and, and I've dealt with some not so nice publicists. So it's really nice when you have the nice interactions. All the characters in this book, even the ones you want to hate, <laughs> you get wrapped up in them because right. you're there's a backstory, there's something going on. When I was reading through this and the, the lip reading thing, totally brilliant because I've had to, for the last two years, I almost watch TV exclusively with just closed captioning. Oh, yeah. And because the sounds are just too difficult for me. And the one of the shows wasn't closed captioned. But I really wanted to watch it. And all of a sudden I realized I knew everything they were saying. Uh, because yeah. over the last two years, I've sort of built up this superpower of I can lip read, but also get from their interactions what is going on and the emotions and the words. So total, total superpower. And I, I love that you built that in there. When you were writing the book, there's so much going on in the world today around, you know, COVID and this whole idea of these super labs that are building all these bio weapons and and you know and the government doesn't want stuff to get out and i'm trying to figure out how to phrase this so we don't talk about anything because there is nothing about viruses in this book everybody okay i'm trying to well talk there's there's a little bit little bit yes but, and, but and bear like, in mind i wrote a... it i wrote it before COVID, just for okay. the record 
Okay. So yes, the, the notion that a virus making people sick, uh, like that, you know, that was one of those things where uh, uh, life imitated art, not the other way around. Okay, so when you when you talked about you know using viruses with quantum entanglement and this and that, and then you you mentioned, and I I don't think this is gonna um, ruin anything from anybody. Spoiler alert: not gonna do that. But you talked about the government. And you talked about China and these different pieces. For you, as a human being in the world, and as an author in the world, and a former journalist, how does that play into you deciding to use something or not use something, knowing that everybody nowadays blames China like we used to blame when I was growing up, Russia, right. you know, and we're still blaming Russia, and we're still blaming China, and you know, it, it's constant back and forth. But where, how do you find that balance for yourself in the what's believable, what makes it too political, what that kind of thing? Yeah, the, the political stuff is hard, right? Because things that didn't used to be political have somehow become political. Like right. you wouldn't think saying, hey, wear a mask in the middle of a pandemic would be a particularly political thing either way, right? But somehow it has become politically charged. I don't totally. know. So, um, I, I guess I ultimately believe, though, is that my job is to give you the best story I can give you. So, like, I serve the story. And if you end up – so what, what's funny is, okay, because this was an Amazon first read selection, right, it, it's already been out in the universe for a while, and I've already gotten a bunch of reviews on the site, right? And so you get this – different take. And, and I, I generally, I have a rule for myself. I only check once a day, like, because I do read my reviews, right? And um, if I, because if I, if I did more often than that, I'd be like checking constantly. I'd be like a little rodent in the cage, like constantly hitting the thing, the pellet. Anyway, um, so I get like a day's worth. So, you know, you know, 30, 40, 50 reviews all at once. And I just kind of read them all. And you get this great back and forth sometimes. Like, so for example, in the same book, Interference, uh, I got one guy saying, well, interference was fine, but there was all this me too garbage thrown in there. And I don't want to read about this crap. In the same day, I got another one calling me sexist and misogynist for something I wrote. So like on the one hand, I'm a toady for me too. And on the other hand, I'm a misogynist. Like make up your mind, people. Like, I don't know. So, uh, you know, there's a certain ex amount of this stuff that you kind of just you put out in the world and some people are going to have a very strong reaction to something about the book, but you kind of have to recognize that every now and then that has more to do with them than it does with you. Um, and so I, I really, all I'm trying to do to, to answer the question is I'm trying to tell the best story I can. And, you know, in terms of what I use and what I don't use, uh, I'm frankly, when I write, Laura, I, I know you would like to hold me up because I've won awards and whatnot as being some Lots kind of, of paragon of great writer and everything. No, I am like a drowning man, okay? I am, I'm, I'm in the water, I'm going down. I am going to grab onto anything I can possibly grab that allows me to get to the next scene, to, to, to hook the reader a little more, to twist it like, oh my God, I could use that for a twist and it's China? Take it, you know? I mean, it's, it's not, uh, there, there's no great intent to uh, have any kind of political message one way or the other, frankly, in this whole thing. Um, you know, I mean, I, th I think it does have to be, uh, you know, somewhat grounded in reality. It's, it, it's funny, I, I always say as, as a former journalist, um, 
people like their truth to be stranger than fiction, but they like their fiction to read like it's true. So you, yeah. you do kind of have to be careful of like, you know, making it, uh, yeah, so, somewhat plausible and making it possible. So, but but I think the the bounds of, of, of what's acceptable there, I mean, is it, is it plausible that uh, in, the, in the case of this book, that a, a young woman, uh, a young graduate student would possibly be accusing her older married professor of sexual harassment? Has that ever happened? Oh uh, yeah, all the time. And so, yes, it has it happened to you. And like, you know, is that very plausible? Yeah, it is, you know? So like, okay, I'm good here. Um, so I, I think that that's like, it's not, again, I, I'm not trying to craft any message and I'm not, you know, the, the question that please don't ask me because I'll never have a good answer. Like, what do you want readers to take away from this book? Like, I would never that, ask that. That ain't my job, all right? <laughs> like, I don't decide what you get to take away. I just get to, to decide what I put in, right? Um, and hope that what you take away is mostly um, skipping certain bodily functions so you can keep reading. That's, that's by and large what I want you to take away every time. I, I can't tell you how much water I drank when it was all over. I was like, oh my God, it's been like six hours. I haven't moved. I got up <laughs> okay, and I yeah. was like. Stay hydrated, Laura. Come on, let's go. <laughs> all right, I'm going to have some right now. Mm. The reference to Me Too where you just talked about mm. The graduate student, by the way, everybody, I'm not going to spoil this, but oh my God, that whole section and how it ended up blew me away. Totally blew me away. But it's, it's again, it's one of those people want their fiction to read like truth. You, you take your different pieces and your perspective as a reader of your work. And the interwovenness of it, I had forgotten you went to Dartmouth. Okay, so when I was reading it, I went. Yeah, Dartmouth would like to me to forget that I went there too, but it it, it hasn't happened anyway. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> but like when I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, he's been there, or he's just making this stuff up. And I I need to ask you this because you describe one of the professor's places where he's living, and I'm like, I wonder if he lived in a place. <laughs> just like that where it's like the lean-to and the side of the building oh. that was added into it the, the descriptiveness of what you put in so many of the scenes of all of your books is one of the things that draws me to it as well because I, I can feel it I can see it I can almost smell the places right. that you talk about in the book so is that are those places that you've been to that you know specifically or where does that probably come from? not specifically but yeah no it's it's very much my my life experience coming in so um for me everything that happens in the novel that i write down is something that i can see in my head okay and the choice i have to make as a storyteller is how much do i tell you about because uh, if I if I slow it way down too much and tell you absolutely everything I see you'll get bored and that will be bad because then you'll get up and go to the bathroom. And I don't want that. Um, but so, you know, you kind of like, and I think what this shows actually, Laura, is that you're a good reader uh, because I think good readers can take those like one or two or three key details that I as a writer give and flesh it out themselves. So I bet that that crappy little lean-to tacked on to the side of the house that I had a character living in, even though I'm seeing something in my head, you're seeing something else in your head. I mean, you're, there, there are different lean-tos, right? But it works, 
It totally works. And I don't have to give you every single detail of that lean-to to summon something in your head. But, you know, where did I first see that lean-to? Who the heck knows? I mean, yeah, I, I went to Dartmouth. Uh, I, I, you know, tromped around New Hampshire quite a bit. Uh, but I, specifically, I, I, I don't know. So there, there is one house that is fairly specific, fairly late in the book, where uh, Emmett Webster, who we have not talked about yet, Emmett Webster is our New Hampshire state police detective, is going looking for a certain character. And he goes to this graduate student housing um, that is is described in, in, in somewhat vivid yes. detail. I actually, I ended up taking some of the vivid detail out because I didn't want to get, you know, anyone arrested uh, I don't know what the drug laws are in New Hampshire anymore. Anyhow, uh, but it, that was very much based on uh, on a specific off-campus house that I may have frequented once or twice uh, as an undergraduate. And I, and I loved that apparently I described it well enough because one of my friends who lived in said off-campus house uh, messaged me about a week ago and went, was that my house? Like, yeah, Alan, it was. <laughs> That was the place. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so yeah, now and then you, you kind of draw something, you know, straight from your experience. And then other times it's just um, a, a generality or, a, a, you know, kind of an amalgam of images that are that kind of come together in your brain and that you end up imagining and then you describe in the novel. And, and yeah, I'm glad having, that it was vivid for you. Having gone to college and lived, you know, a college life and everything and watched tons of movies, you know, that, that talk about the college and read many books, I really felt that you captured that whole idea of tenured professors mm. that everybody hears about, that idea of campus life and even the subtleties of, and not so subtleties of the politics that go on. Mm. And then, because you mentioned Emmett Webster, who is, I think, one of my new favorite characters that you've written I like about. He's a good guy. In, in terms of, you know, the, the police officer that's trying to um, get past some really horrible grief-stricken things that have happened. We, we, we can say it. His, uh, the, as the novel begins, his wife passes away. Okay. Right? I don't and, like and to I, spoil. I, so. Yeah, I know that, but that's it's so early on. That's barely Yeah, but you can, so it's okay. <laughs> yes, I, I can say it. So sorry, people, I can give him it. But, <laughs> okay, so, but that's, a, that's a defining element of his character, right, of, of, of who Emmett Webster is, is he is this man dealing with grief. Um, you know, and, and so, yeah, where, where does that stuff come from? Well, you know, it turns out that when I was working in a newspaper a bunch of years ago, I had a woman who had, was two desks behind me who at a relatively young age lost her husband. And I watched her go through that. Uh, like I said, for, for the couple of years after that, I sat, like I said, two desks away. And, you know, one of the things I learned from that was how close that loss always was for her, right. you know, and, and people would be like, well, I don't want to mention her husband because she might not be thinking about it right now. You're always thinking about she's it. Always thinking about it. She's always, it's always right there. She's always waking up every morning and there's something missing in the bed. Right. And she's always thinking in terms of like, Oh, I'd love to tell Walter about this. Well, Right. No, you know, like, and so like being able to put that into Emmett Webster, the cop, um, and actually one of my, my favorite reviews I've gotten so far was from a recent widower uh, who was talking about how he had just lost his wife and about how the way that Emmett Webster was portrayed was to him very accurate. And, he, and it made him, you know, feel like there was somebody else out there who was experiencing the same thing. Um, and when you get that, it's like, oh man, I mean, that's, that's what I write for, right? 
to 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 bring people to life that way and to I don't know uh, help that guy in, or or not help. I mean that that sounds incredibly self-serving of me, but you know, but like to make that connection with that man, right? That that he maybe felt a little less alone in the world because somebody else understood what he was going through and that there was this character that he could latch onto and say, yeah, that's me. Um, I, I just think that's like one of the incredibly powerful things about this is why we read fiction. Well, you did that for me too with that section about Emmett Webster. My mom died just a little less than three years ago. And my mom imbued in me the love of fiction of all kinds, the love of books, doesn't matter fiction, nonfiction, whatever. It was just the love of books. And the fact that, you know, the character, he was going to be retiring and they were going to go in mm. an RV and travel. And then his, the love of his life passes. And all of a sudden those priorities change because it doesn't feel like it would be the same without her. Since my mom died, I took care of her for six years. Oh, wow. And yeah then it's like, okay, now what? I'm alone. My brother's in heaven. My dad's in heaven. I'm not married. I got divorced. My dog died. And it's, I felt it in there. And mm. the struggle that he was going through of getting back into some sort of rhythm, but then how others may perceive you because they've kind of moved on. Right. Because, like, hey, that funeral was three months ago. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and, and work moves on Yeah. around yeah. you. And now you're coming back in so it was very poignant and it, it did hit my heart quite a bit and it was subtle but it was there and i went i can relate to this character and your characters are very relatable the good guys and the bad guys but they never go into caricature well that's what i hope right um you know i always say like i i, I want my characters and, and if there's a theme of all of my books even though I've kind of zigged and zagged and kind of taken different different turns, like to me, my characters are always people that you could meet in the grocery store, right? They're not, they're not ex special forces. They're not, uh, they can't break your jaw by looking at it. They're not, you know, they they're not superheroes. Yeah, they, even like, your they marine character. So that yeah, the one exception might be the the shadowy billionaire at the heart of this, Sean Plotner. Maybe Sean has people do his shopping for him, <laughs> admittedly. So you're not going to meet him at the grocery store. But, but I don't know. I guess what's important is like they're real to me. Like these are these are people who exist in my head. I can like I can close my eyes. I can see them. I can hear what their voices sound like. Um, and then it's kind of my job to uh, one bring them faithfully to the page, and then two. Uh, allow them to be consistent with themselves, which sounds kind of goofy, but I, I'm sort of amazed by the number of times when I'm trying to write a scene and it's not working and it's not working. And I'm always like, what the, what the hee-haw heck is going on here? And again, I'm like a drowning man when I write. So there's a lot of like thrashing going on. And, but like, so it's sometimes hard with all the water that I'm kicking up to know exactly what's going wrong. But oftentimes what's going wrong is I'm making a character do something they don't want to do and that they wouldn't naturally do. And that as soon as I identify that and fix it, the scene suddenly works. And it's like, well, because I was forcing that character to do something for my needs, not for their needs, right? Um, and so, yeah, hopefully in the end, what you get is characters who are well-drawn and, and as real to you as they are to me. When you said, what the hee-haw heck? <laughs> I, I need to know. Do you say that when you're writing? 
Uh, uh, I <laughs> might use stronger language, uh, although I'm very careful. You will not see four-letter words in my books, uh, and that's been a that's been a long-standing policy of mine. Uh, and I I have to thank the late great Mary Higgins Clark for that. Oh, um, I know so she's she's terrific. So I had for my very first book, I had an opportunity to get a blurb from Mary Higgins Clark, like a, <gasps> a, an endorsement from her, right? But I was told she does not blurb books with four-letter words in them. Okay. So my the agent at the time who was telling me this uh, was was asking me. She's like, well, uh, and, you know, because my first response was, you know, this this was for my first book, which was about a newspaper reporter in Newark, New Jersey. Well, if you've ever been in a newsroom, there's a lot of language flying around, and if you've ever been in the streets of Newark, New Jersey, there's a wow. lot of language flying around. Yes. And you know, so if, at first I'm like, I am an artiste. I am representing this world as it truly is. I am, and my agent said, well, let me ask you something. You know, there's a certain percentage of people who simply do not want to see these words in their books. Right. And they will not read you from then on if they see these words. And we can debate like what size of the readership is that? Is it 10%? Let's call it 10%. Okay, 10%. She said, do you want your readership to be 10% larger or 10% smaller? Good point. Like, point, yeah. Um, and then she asked me, she's like, okay, who is, uh, you know, who's your favorite author right now at this moment? And I think at that moment, I'm like, ah, Harlan Coben, right? And she said, does Harlan Coben use those words? And I realized I didn't know. Oh, that's because I don't know either. I don't. Yeah, I could. So I actually had to go and look and I'll actually Harlan does not use those words. Uh, and so I spent one morning, a very memorable morning in my life, and my, my agent had done a word search on the book, and she found the S word 116 times in the manuscript, and the F word 120 times That's quite in a the bit. manuscript. So I spent an entire morning removing 116 S's and 120 F's from my manuscript, uh, and to, to get to the, the much cleaner product that you see before you. Where did, where did we, how did we start on all this? I know it started with Mary Higgins Clark, but what even got me into that? I, I'm not sure, but uh, yes, it's a clean book that you can, you can read it to your grandma if you want to. It's the, the red skeleton version of books versus the Eddie Oh, Hee Haw Hack, that's right. You asked it, Hee Haw Hack, do I say <laughs> right. Hee Haw Hack? No, I say something much stronger, but then I, you know, I go back and make sure that none of those words actually appear in the book. I was talking, I don't remember who it was at one point in time. This was back when I was in high school or something. And somebody said to me that using curse words, especially in writing, means that you can't think of an even better word to use. Right. And I agree with that for the most part. There is one word I miss terribly, though, Laura. Mother F. Oh. It turns out there's just no good synonym for Mother F. That's what I, I learned that morning when I was getting rid of my 120 Fs is a few of them were Mother Fs and there's no <laughs> substitute for that. Uh, but, you know, live and, and learn and, and move on and, and yeah, right around it. And every, every once in a while, I will have a character say something like, you know, I uttered a curse or something like that. Then I think, you know, readers, when you say that, like I swore at the person, if that's what my protagonist is saying, He's probably mother effing in him. Just is. Sorry. Right. But you, a lot of people shut down when, when they yeah, see they, things they like that. Yeah, they just don't want to see and, that. And that's fine. Yeah. 
So, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want anything that gets in the way of the reading experience or that gets in the way of people's enjoyment. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to create friction where there doesn't need to be friction. So I'm yeah, there's okay. enough friction in the yeah, world true. everywhere true. you go right now. <laughs> I had just somebody climbing in my attics, looking at insulation because I've got a moisture mold problem upstairs and, you know, he put the mask on and we got into this whole conversation about kind of theoretically about friction of all kinds, you uh, know, yeah. and because insulation, friction, heat, ventilation, you know, the whole thing. So there is definitely enough. And one of the things that I love and uh, a friend of mine who's listening to the show right now live on Facebook, Tom Kais, is a huge fan of yours. He oh. is a former, hey, Tom. Thank you. former journalist, like uh, you, okay. a former editor of a newspaper. And he now writes fiction books like you do. He's written three books, one of them, Random Road. Everybody, I'm going to give a shout out to him because Brad just said hi to him and he loves you, Brad. He loves everything you've written. Um, but what I love about reading books like this is, as my mother always said, books can transport you mm. anywhere you want to go in the world, even when you feel trapped. Mm. There is another world you can go to and all you need to do is pick up a book. Right. And your books, this is, is this the 11th or the 10th? Uh, this is my 10th. Yeah. This is your 10th. Okay. Well, happy anniversary, 10th book. Huge. Thanks. Yeah. Big deal. Huge. I've only got three. You got 10. Um, they transport you and your books, this is my, cause I just love you. I don't have a lot of fiction authors on my show. Most of the people I interview are, are nonfiction people because I do a lot of business stuff. Transporting somebody to a world that shows them hope and possibility or allows them to escape from whatever situation they're in, even if it's for just a few moments, is is a skill. And it mm. is it is one of those things that not everybody has the ability to do and I feel it's a higher purpose that if, if you write books like this, you have a higher purpose. You, you believe that you're here to do something. So if I were to ask you in your life with your family, do you feel you have a purpose? Yeah. And you've just stated it beautifully, Laura. So like, I'm, I'm actually going to, can you go back in Facebook and kind of like copy that and then paste it in? Like, yes, my purpose is exactly what you just described. I mean, no, let's be clear. Like I, I do, I do write for a living. I mean, this is how I support my family. Um, so like that's, that's always, um, uh, you know, a reality, of course. Like I, I'm not, uh, I'm not independently wealthy. Uh, I, I drive a 2014 Ford Fusion. So, you know, I, I'm not, we don't have hot and cold running servants around here. Uh, but beyond those necessities of like, the, you know, why do you write? Um, that's it for me. I mean, what, you, what you've just articulated. I, I think there's a, there's a big divide in the writing community between people who fundamentally write for themselves. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I, 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 I am taking shots at no one. But those of us who write for others. Uh, and I have always been someone who writes for the reaction I get in other people. Uh, I want to move people with words, right? And and whether that's sometimes you make them laugh and sometimes you make them cry and sometimes you make them, you know, 
face palm. Oh my God, I can't believe this character is such an idiot. All of that and, in all your books. All that, you're right, all the time, right? And sometimes you're just like, oh my God, I, I, I gotta keep reading because like, how the heck is this gonna be like, you know, or just- I gotta go back because- I gotta go back and figure it out. Or, you know, maybe it's just like that little bit of brain candy that you're like, ooh, that's cool, that's fun, I like, you know? So all those kind of things of like, yeah, that's, that's why I do it. Like, I, I really, I think of this as entertainment on the page. Um, and I want you to be entertained for 400 pages or however long this book is. Um, and that's, that's what I do it for. And, and when I, when I get that reader email saying that, like, you made me ignore my laundry, you made me ignore my husband, you made me ignore my kids, you made, you know, that's, yep, that's it. All right, job well done for today. I can quit now because that's, you know, yeah, to, to be able to transport people, to be able to, to take them out of whatever they happen to be in at the moment. I mean, it's certainly why I read, right? So right. to be able to, to give that pleasure to other people, if I can do that, then yeah, that I, how, how simple or complex is this? Like, that's what makes my life worthwhile. Seriously, to, to be able to do that for other people, that's why I do what I do. And I know on social media, um, on Facebook, at Brad Park Books, you engage back and forth with your fans a lot about what's going on and what's happening. How does that help you as an author to, because I have a lot of authors and wannabe authors that listen to my show as well. So I would be remiss if I did not ask you a question about the business side. Mm. of books. You know, we opened up talking about, you know, the change in the date and the algorithms and all of that. But for somebody who's listening that is wondering what they need to do, what tidbit you could give them, what would be your advice to an author? So, yeah, when it comes to that front, I would say uh, you really have to decide the one thing you want from this and then let it guide the rest of your decisions from there. Um, and, you know, so for me, like, I have to make a living doing this, right? Uh, I have no other means of support. I have no other marketable skills, Laura. I mean, this, like, this is it. So I, I, I got to make a living doing this. And that has guided some of my decisions. Like, even though I love the word mother F, I take it out of my book because I don't want to make that reader mad at me, right? right? Um, or like I've, I've fired an agent. That wasn't fun, but I had to because I need to make a living doing this. I've left publishing houses. I've done, you know, a lot of things because like the, the, the goal has always been need to make a living and that kind of like, you know, but that's not the only goal, right? And I, and I think um, depending on where people are in their lives, in their careers, in, in, in what's going on, there can be a lot of different reasons, but, but pick that one, right? So, okay, look, we would all love to be J.K. Rowling or John Grisham or, you know, whoever, you know, Stephen world King, famous and rich may. and beloved yeah. and all this kind of stuff, but, but no, pick that one thing. Like, so maybe that one thing for some of your, your, uh, the people listening out there right now is, they want to leave a book behind that their grandchildren can read someday. And that is an incredible goal. Like that is an, right. like, I, I get, I get like kind of well up when I think about that, like of, of like that, you know, that book becoming someone's legacy. Well, so if that's the case, if that's really what drives you, then heck, if, if we're talking from the business side, forget getting an agent, forget getting a publisher, forget, you know, like if, just like, self-publish the book. 
and hand it to your grandchild. It, like, it, it'll save you so much pain and, and, and rejection and strife. And, and like, you don't need that stuff. Or, you know, but maybe, um, maybe you're writing for the esteem of other writers. Like you, you want other writers to recognize that, you know, your ability as a writer, which is another like perfectly valid goal. Right. Well, so maybe that like leads you to, you know, a smaller publishing house where you, you know, you don't have to worry quite so much about how many books you sell um, mm -hmm. because the expectations are lower. And like, that can be a wonderful experience. Um, or, you know, maybe you really are just writing for something deep within yourself. And you know that it like some fills some urge in you, and in which case, you know what? If you don't get published at all, that's okay because you've already accomplished your goal, right? If you are writing for to, to satisfy something deep in your soul, it doesn't matter whether it gets published or not. So I, I think it's just like pick that one thing, and let that one thing, whatever it is, recognize one that one thing is valid. Because it's valid for you, ergo, it's valid. And two, you let that one thing drive every decision you make from there on out. And hopefully if you do that, you get that one thing. I don't know, how's that for advice? That, all that kept going through my head was, that's the show ending. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, because I do so much with business folks and life stuff and everything, I think that's advice, whether you're writing a book or anything, it's, it's life advice. And I love that. And that just says so much of who you are, Brad, and, and who your characters come through in your books. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. This is fun, Laura. You are good at this. I said you were good at this two years ago. You're good at this. I, I <laughs> love, I love that we get to that, like that deeper human level. Um, it's, that's, that's a, that's a lot of fun. And that's a, uh, a great thing to be able to, to share with you and to share with the other people watching. And I don't know, I, I think like ultimately we're on this planet to, yeah, we got to get ourselves fed and we got to, you know, a certain amount to eat and whatnot, but like, ultimately like we're on this planet to connect with other human beings. Um, and so to, to make that connection with you and, and hopefully some of the other people watching today warms my heart. And I appreciate that. Thank you. And let's let's give a feed out to your publisher and your numbers so that you can continue to feed your family. Where can everybody get this book? <laughs> uh, they can get it today? wherever they prefer to get books, uh, whether that's the Vero Beach Book Center or whether that's an online bookseller or whether that's a, another uh, bookseller. Like it, it is available wherever books are sold. It is it is on ebook. Uh, it's on audio if people like to do that. Uh, it is it is everywhere they want to be, we hope. As of today, it's like everywhere. It's and as of a few weeks ago, if you- The line is out of the cage. No, no, now it's out everywhere okay, and everybody great. can get to it. And great. I hope- And I'm the best way for people to interact with you, to communicate back and forth with one of their favorite authors or new favorite authors. Right. So uh, they can go to www.facebook.com slash bradpartsbooks. Uh, that's probably where I lurk mostly online. Uh, Twitter, it's brad underscore parks. Uh, my website, if they kind of want to kick around, www.bradparksbooks.com. Or, um, you know, if, if you're this deep into this Facebook Live and you haven't run away screaming and you just want to send me an email, uh, brad at bradparksbooks.com, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, awesome. And this is going to go out on social media everywhere after the Facebook Live. It'll be everywhere as well. And I know you have several more coming up with your launch so people can can find you and get different perspectives of interviews with you. So what's your book tour kind of look like? It looks like two uh, virtual events and that's it. Really? Uh, so, 
it's I'm, I'm doing a, a Zoom tonight, and then I'm doing a Facebook Live on Thursday night at eight o'clock, and that's all she wrote. It's going to be a little weird, Laura. Definitely. I got to be honest. Like I'm, I'm used to like, yeah, I'm on the road for a couple of weeks. I'm going to bookstores. I'm, you know, meeting with people, and uh, and now it's just like I'm not leaving the house. Oh man! Mm. All right. Well, we got to get some more book tour thingies going for you because everybody needs to read this book uh, if you like to just escape. It is wonderful and brilliant lesson on physics in here too, and making it completely understandable. So I want to know for anybody that reads the book, post up on my social media anywhere and Brad tagging him on Facebook at Brad Park Books um, and me anywhere. I am Laura Stewart is my handle or the Laura Stewart everywhere on social media. Um, I love it. Thank you for being here with me today and for um, the gift of a day where I just forgot everything else and got lost in another world. Warms my heart. It's a total gift. Thanks very much. And thanks for, thanks for living with me. All right. So hang in a minute while I close out. All right. The whole idea of the show is to help you shift your perspectives to get, uh, to escape to other worlds that you may not know in real life and, and in fiction. And the way you do that is by asking questions, because as you know, as you've been following me, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everybody, and get a new book. And this is the one I recommend today, Interference by Brad Parks, if you're listening just on the podcast. Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.